one of the key things about about a leader you're really bringing clarity into a field of ambiguity you've got to bring that clarity which means that you're you're drawing very bright lines around what we are going to do and what we're not going to do or why we're doing what we're doing and why we're not doing this and so that can obviously look to teams that you're leading as being not top down but being rigid right where you 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 don't appear to be just coaching you seem to be telling it's like okay yeah that's a great idea but we're not going to do that right now and the reason why we're not going to do that right now is our priorities are this and this it's not that and that but what you're really trying to do as a leader is coach people along that journey where they can make those decisions those distinctions for themselves so there's a, there's a fine line where you are you are leading through coaching and collaborating and communicating these top level narratives, helping people understand the why and be able to project themselves into this future that you're 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 uh, you're uh, painting. But then you still also need to be able to make very clear decisions around prioritization, about resource allocation, and so yeah, it's it's walking that fine line. I think a lot of leaders do actually have a challenge. The function of leadership is to produce more leaders, not more followers. Welcome to the Pay It Forward Society, where we believe that leadership is a continuous learning journey and where knowledge is passed on to the next generation of leaders. I'm super excited to propose a very different episode than previous ones. Today, my guest is James Colgan. James is a product leader who has an incredible track record working in Japan the US, France, for tech companies like Panasonic, Rackspace, Microsoft, Slack, or Spendesk, a French unicorn. I truly enjoyed this episode where we dove deep into organization design, how to communicate and embark teams on transformational journeys. As you will discover, James is a passionate product leader, and we'll get a lot of details about product strategy. Enjoy the show. Hey James, thanks for joining. My pleasure, my pleasure. It's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, likewise. I mean, I mean, uh, I was looking forward to that discussion, so I, I love to for for you to introduce yourself if you want uh, very quickly, and then we will dive into the most exciting topics of the day. You know, your experience and your leadership style, and your approach to leadership and your journey, but also more specifically. Uh, Talking about your experience, your recent experience uh, with uh, Spendesk, uh, because uh, when we prepared the, the the conversation today, you told me that you went through different phases uh, that I think are very interesting to uh, to dive deep on. So uh, yeah, that's the agenda basically for today. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thank you very much, Romain. Yeah, so give a little bit of background on myself. As you can probably tell from my accent, I'm I'm from the UK originally born, raised, and educated there, but never actually worked there. Very early on in my career, I, I moved out to Japan, actually the start of my career. I lived out there for a number of years as an engineer. And there, also working in the field, that's where I really started to develop my or hone my skills around being customer-centric. And I think that's really something that I've carried throughout my entire career, has been very, very close to customers. And then from there, I was working for an American company in the semiconductor industry. And it was through that 
work where they liked what I was doing in Japan. They wanted me to do that globally. And so they brought me into Silicon Valley, which, uh, you know, as, as somebody in the technical field, you can appreciate that. It's a place to be. It's not the only place to be anymore. I mean, there's a lot of technology throughout the world now, which is fantastic. But yeah, I've been here ever since. I moved into software about halfway through my career. And really the entry into leadership for me started a little bit before, but really started to take on a more meaningful aspect of what I was doing once I joined Microsoft. So I joined Microsoft as the first product leader for the Outlook Mobile product, what became the Outlook Mobile product. Through an acquisition, right? It was an acquisition, yeah. uh, an amazing team, the Accompli team. And they were acquired by Microsoft to become really the tip of the spear for Microsoft strategy to gain a foothold and grow within the mobile space. Because obviously at that point, it was really all about Google and Apple. And then in the productivity space, it was Gmail and Apple Mail and Apple yeah. Calendar. And uh, it was really challenging at that time for Microsoft to get that foothold. And so that acquisition became the beginning of what really came became a, a, a dominant push for what was then Office 365 and what became Microsoft 365. Like I say, Outlook Mobile was the tip of that spear. After an exciting tour at Microsoft, Satya Nadella had only been in seat for about four or five months as the CEO. And watching the cultural changes that that leader took that company and is taking that company through was absolutely phenomenal. You could see on a quarter by quarter basis how that company changed and evolved. Then I was recruited into Slack. And at Slack, a very different company, very different environment, different challenges, but similar in that this was also a company that was looking to leverage its strength from the product perspective to, and its product-led growth, its PLG motion, to then step into an enterprise type of a motion. And from there, really to get into, into sales-led growth and, and enterprise, really back then and still to this day, competing with Microsoft and Teams and Microsoft 365, now obviously within Salesforce. Then I got an opportunity to move over to Paris, over to yeah. France. And my wife being French, as you know, that was a wonderful opportunity for me to, to learn French. So my French went from non-existent to just bad. <laughs> And to get closer to my French family, which was wonderful, and to explore that wonderful country and all of Europe. And then last uh, fall, last summer, fall time, we moved back to the States and now we're back in San Francisco. So that is that is me in a nutshell. In in France, as, as we, we mentioned earlier, that's when I was joining, I joined a, a startup called Spendesk in the fintech space. I mean, I think that's going to be a lot of what we're talking about today, yeah. really taking that startup and working with the executive team into a scale-up and really looking at how you actually level up an organization, a product, et cetera. An, an incredible, fantastic time. France in particular, a lot of people don't know from this side of the pond how much activity and innovation is actually happening in Europe, but in, in France and Paris in particular, it's, it's phenomenal. The number of uh, unicorns over there is just, it's just, it's just blossomed. So there's a lot going on over there and I, I managed to, I got an opportunity to see that from the front, front row seat. So yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you for the overview. Excellent. Yeah. We'll spend some time on, uh, on your experience with the spend desk, but, uh, there are a few things I would like to, to go back to. First of all, uh, why did you move to Japan? Yeah, so that was, it was one of these, luck is when opportunity meets preparation. And 
I had been reading about Japan, the the novels actually, and, and Japanese history through James Clavell, Shogun, things like that, these big meaty books, and was absolutely fascinated by the culture. And while I was doing my degree in uh, electronic engineering, there was an opportunity to to carry out a, a, an annual, a year-long internship in Tokyo. Mm, okay. And so the placement officer said, hey, he was kind of funny, actually. He said, uh, hey, James, do you, do you like traveling? I said, I love traveling. I'm in, I'm in Leicester, aren't I? Being a cocky little kid that I was. Leicester was about 200 miles away from, from where I grew up. And he said, I was thinking a little bit further than that. <laughs> it's like, what do you mean? He said, I was thinking Tokyo. It's like, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's a little different. And yes, yeah, so I interviewed for the position. I was fortunate enough to get it. So I went out for that one year, then went back to university, got my, uh, got my degree, and then applied to getting another position out there with a different company. I joined Panasonic. Mm. I wanted to learn the language. I wanted to learn the culture. I joined a team where nobody spoke English. Wow. And it was, wow, what a, what a learning curve that was. I was doing assembly programming on on NEC x86 compatible processors that was very different to Intel processors and the assembly language we were using over there. And all of the documentation obviously was in Japanese. And so, yeah, it was a trial by fire. But loved it, and that was, and I was there in six years in total. Wow! Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. I, I, I was about to go to, to Japan as well. Cool. Yeah, because I was working for Renault at the time, and because of Renault Nissan yeah. Alliance, there were opportunities for me to move there. My girlfriend at that time didn't want to move, but uh, but I was really mm. close to move to Tokyo and. Uh, and uh, one of my favorite movies, uh, Lost in Translation. Oh, <laughs> it's <laughs> they absolutely nailed it. Yeah, absolutely nailed it. Uh, that's a fabulous, fabulous movie. They crystallized a, a, so much about that 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 intersection or that collision between the two cultures. Yeah, yeah. amazing. Yeah, wonderful movie. <laughs> Perfect. So, well, so now, next question is about leadership. I mean, uh, can you tell me more about your first experience as a leader? So you said it was a uh, right before Microsoft. Yes, yeah, so a leader. I think I think I need to amend that a little bit because there's there's a big difference between leadership and management. Oh, and and, ma and management really came a little bit before Microsoft. But what leadership per se, I think to a certain degree, I, I've I've kind of done that throughout my entire career. I think it's very key for people to understand that you don't need to be a manager to be a leader. Funny that you say that because the next episode I'm going to record is with a director level person at Amazon, but they they are an IC and yeah. uh, and they have been an, an individual contributor their whole career. And I just I wanted to to dwell into the leadership aspect of just being a leader with no people management role. Perfect. No, this is. In 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 my mind, the most successful teams you, you'll you'll be sat around a table, and if you look at the salaries or the paychecks that are around that table, it's not always the one with the biggest paycheck that's actually leading. And I would actually say that it shows a maturity in the leader themselves if they can take a step back. Two different things: you you can recognize the expertise and skill or maybe the idea of the other person at the table and recognizing yourself that this is maybe not where you are an expert or you want to 
provide space for that that younger, less experienced new leader to actually take the floor and lead themselves. And so it's really where we start touching there and more like servant leadership, where it's what can you do as a leader to help the other people around that table? And so, and it's not always the other part as well, we're kind of bouncing around a little bit, but it's not always the extrovert, right? As, as a leader, you can be again around that table and it can be somebody that's a little bit more introverted. Your role again is to provide space for everyone's ideas to to come forth. And sometimes that space is just being quiet, just just shutting up, asking the question and waiting for the answer to come. You've got various people of various different cognitive styles and so yeah absolutely so back to your original question as as a as a precocious ic when you are coming from one country into a into another country you have a different take on things you're seeing things with with new or different eyes you're asking different questions and so you can find yourself in a position of leadership even though you're the one with the smallest paycheck around the table. And that I found, so I was working with Japanese people. I was the only foreigner there. And I often found myself in that situation where I could help the team think in different ways, get organized in different ways, because that's the benefit of having a diverse team. I was the diversity hire. I was the yeah. the, the the unique person around the table not that I was smarter or or anything else like that. I was just different. And so, yeah, I was coming to the team with different ideas and, and those ideas happen to be good or they happen to be believed in by the other people around that team. And then it's a matter of, you know, working hard and working with the rest of the team to make them real. And with those ideas and that organization and communication skills, communication is absolutely key. Then all of a sudden you find yourself in a leadership position. You are now a leader. No one's promoted you. You haven't got an increase in paycheck. You don't have an extra shiny badge, but now you're a leader and it's challenging, but it's it's extraordinarily rewarding, not just on the on the material side because that positions you well for those promotions, et cetera, but just on the self-gratification and self-actualization side. I love that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for sharing. So uh, from, from that position in Japan, where you demonstrated your leadership capabilities, you were uh, offered a manager role, is that correct? Or, no, or no, no. Well, I was a manager, but I, I I was an IC for a long time. Yeah, and it's only upon reflection it became it became clear why that was actually the case is because I I invariably found myself moving between organizations and bringing organizations together. Okay. And that definitely was for for a good stint of my time, even at Microsoft, where kind Building of like bridges. yeah, exactly. And you you've got this, you've got functional management and functional leadership, and then you've got strategic leadership, yeah. or it could be execution leadership, but it's horizontal as opposed to vertical. And invariably, I found myself in these horizontal roles where, so for example. This is when I was back in the in the uh, semiconductor space working on integrated microprocessors. And so my role there was to pull together partnerships for operating system vendors, 
system integrators. I was flying out to Taiwan, meeting with a lot of the Taiwanese manufacturers out there. A lot of the work that I've done throughout my career is building bridges and bringing in field marketing, the go-to-market motion, product marketing, etc. I was product marketing for a long time. And so I'd be moving in between these organizations, bringing different people around the table to accomplish a particular goal or solve a particular problem. And that's, that is extremely empowering, extremely rewarding, but it's, it's very different to management per se. And that, again, is, the, is one of the key things that we're talking about here. It is leadership, not management. Mm-hmm. And so the f- I, first time I, I actually was managing people directly, that was just a little bit before, bit before Microsoft. It's about halfway through my career. And there it was, it was managing PMs, managing designers, and really starting to understand and learn the operations of management, what it means to help people along their career journey, help people along their career path, understand, do performance reviews, have one-on-ones. It was, the, it was, it was formalized process and structured leadership as opposed to I don't know, not free form, but it's more strategic directional leadership. It's hard. I need to work on how to actually articulate that. But yeah, there's a, is a different. That's yeah. why I started to hone those types of skills, the management skills. Okay. And how did you get there? I mean, uh, how did you get to a management position? Was was there a specific trigger that you had and say, yeah, I want to lead a team now, or or you was you was you would you were told, hey, you are the best performer there. Uh, I need you to lead that team. It was actually now I think about it. This is this is why I like these types of conversations. You're making me think about things I haven't thought about for a long time. My first management role was actually the founding of my company. I was a founder and a CEO, and I pulled together a team there. And that was a matter out of necessity. But being a, a young, small startup. There wasn't, there were no performance reviews. There was no organization, no process. So it almost, that doesn't really count. But then where I got, I got recruited in, first of all, to Rackspace and then to another startup company. And there it was a matter of, it was a combination of two things. There was the organization, the structure and the rigor of management. But the reason why I was hired in for that particular role was to take four or five disparate products at various different phases of their product life cycle and be able to knit them into a single coherent product strategy. And so it was kind of the combination of the two, but the emphasis was on the latter rather than okay. the former. It's like, okay, so you, other than your startup, you haven't really got any management experience, but you clearly have the ability to see, think, and act strategically and you're clearly a problem solver because ultimately a leader is either solving problems or helping other people solve problems. And so it was the combination of those two that really helped me stick out as they were looking for someone to take on this role. And that's kind of something that is is consistent with with my own particular form of leadership. Yeah, I like that. So basically your mission was to address a business problem, which was yet different separate disparate products and creating a cohesive portfolio story for customers and and a consequence of that was that you had to manage people that were product owners of the separate products exactly yeah yeah okay 
I like that. Okay. So how did it go? That was it went it went fine. We were able to pull together a, a coherent strategy. Uh, we changed the the business model significantly because we had everything from a a fully flat. It was an acquisition that Rackspace had made. It was it was revenue generating, and it was so taking a bit of a step back to give some sort of a background. This really was the the four different components of what ultimately is is now to considered today an AI ML pipeline. This mm-hmm. is a long time ago though. And so there's data gathering through monitoring, there's data cleaning and, and the metrics. There is intelligence that can be gathered from the data that you're collecting. And then there are automations that you can have based off of that. And coming from Amazon, you'll, you can appreciate this. This was essentially the orchestration layer for how to scale virtual machines, EC2, et cetera. I don't know if you still call it EC2. Maybe yes. it's something you do. No, no, oh, yes, wow. still. So yes, yeah, so that was that was the the system that we were we were building. And so understanding that whole data pipeline, so there's an architectural problem that needs to be resolved there. What does this platform actually look like? And then is how what does the go-to-market motion actually look like? And the biggest challenge that we had, or not, no, that's not true. The, a big challenge that we had was because of the business model of the very front end, the monitoring that was actually being done, that was generating revenue, but that was slowing down customer acquisition and, and getting through to the higher value products and features that were building further down the pipeline, the actual AI ML piece where the real value was. And so that's get the first part was a understanding each of those different products within the product portfolio what they did in depth recognizing where they were in their product life cycle third understanding how they would all fit together but creating a narrative that made sense to everyone as they were thinking through and 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 projecting and visualizing where their products and themselves fit within this bigger picture i think that was the key unlock and that was really just taking off the off of the shell well it it takes a lot of reflection as a leader because you you're trying to find these narratives it's not just this feature that feature it's like what it all means why are you doing this and then once that was put in place the next challenge was how to get these different products on the same, it became more operational, on the same drumbeat, if you will, the same rhythm of business because of the acquisitions, the different state of the products. Success was measured in a different way. There was one one product was very much in the zero to one phase. And so they're doing a lot of iteration and experimentation. They don't really know where, they know where they're going, but they don't know how to get there, okay. et cetera. So it was getting that rhythm of business set up and and then yeah, just keep on keep on moving forward. So that w- that's basically how I approached it. Okay. So if we take a step back, what, what would be your leadership style? Well, at least at that moment, it looks like you were kind of a coach that was uh, helping people to navigate, putting some structure like the rhythm of business that you said. Yeah, I, I would say I, I tend to take the the coaching type of a. Of, of an approach, a, a collaborative type of an, of an approach with, I would say, it may sound like a caveat, but one of the key things about, about a leader, you're really bringing clarity into a field of ambiguity. You've got to bring that clarity, which means that you're 
you're drawing very bright lines around what we are going to do and what we're not going to do or why we're doing what we're doing and why we're not doing this. And so that can obviously look to teams that you're leading as being not top down, but being rigid, right? Where you, you, you don't appear to be just coaching. You seem to be telling is like, okay, yeah, that's a great idea, but we're not going to do that right now. And the reason why we're not going to do that right now is our priorities are this and this, it's not that and that. But what you're really trying to do as a leader is coach people along that journey where they can make those decisions, those distinctions for themselves. So there's a, there's a fine line where you are you are leading through coaching and collaborating and communicating these top level narratives, helping people understand the why and be able to project themselves into this future that you, you're you're uh, you're uh, painting. But then you still also need to be able to make very clear decisions around prioritization, about resource allocation, and so yeah, it's it's walking that fine line. I think a lot of leaders do actually have a challenge. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I I faced that actually in my first year at Amazon because there's a lot of um, empowerment, ownership. You mm-hmm. know, Le- ownership is a leadership principle. And when I joined the team to lead the team, everyone had uh, a very strong point of view. Everyone had opinions, but it was going everywhere. It was uh, messy. And when I put together a plan and based off the ideas and the conversation I had, I mean, uh, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but tried to understand and put a structure around this stuff. I, lot, I, I got a lot of pushback from the team saying, yeah, that's not the way we should do it. It's a bottom-up approach. I say, yeah, it's a bottom-up approach to a certain point. I mean, um, we need to surface all the ideas and you know proposition of um, initiatives that we should run, we could run, but uh, but we need to, uh, to agree on the priorities and, uh, and where we want to go, mm. not in all directions, right? Because otherwise, it's messy, and we're not making any significant progress. And that was tough, actually, to uh, to get that message down because people misused the leadership principle, ownership, mm. as in, yeah, that means that uh, I am the owner and I can drive it the way I want. No, that's not really the, the case. So, mm. so how do you have you had to deal with that, or what's your? Yeah, I feel that there are many leaders who are struggling with that because, and maybe because of, maybe it, it was aggravated with with the pandemic and working from home, and you don't have time to have deep discussions, or it's different when you do that remotely. Yeah, but how did you approach that? Yeah, I mean, the, the the first thing to recognize is that the people that you're leading, they're smart, they're intelligent, yeah. they can make good decisions. In, in in many cases, many cases, they know more than you do about what's actually going on, whether it's a particular piece of code, whether it's a particular customer, or a particular problem that they're trying to solve. And that that immediately needs to be recognized. Where you help as a leader is provide context. And so, I mean, people talk about, you know, start with the why, Simon Sinek, and that is obviously a very good example of how to do that. That's a very glib and quick way to say say context, but that's really just the beginning, and that context can take lots of different forms. And sometimes you need to be able to deploy all of these forms to get the whole organization to move in the direction that you're looking to move. 
Sometimes it's a narrative. Sometimes it's a product strategy. Sometimes it's a presentation. Sometimes it's brown bag conversations that you're having ad nauseum until it, 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 it sinks. Two things are happening, actually. It sinks in exactly where you're wanting people to go, but you're also getting feedback yeah. almost in real time. It's like, okay, is what I'm saying, not only does it make sense, but is this actually feasible? Because you definitely don't want to be delusional in the product strategy that you're putting together. But the framework that I found extremely helpful was something that was really executed during my time over at Slack. And that was the, the W form of, of planning. The, and it's, I think it came out of Harvard Business Review. I think something like that. Maybe something that we can dig up and we can sh put in a link in the show notes. Yeah. So essentially what it does is you start off at the top of the W and that's really where the, the context comes in right? Oh, that's the product strategy, what you're looking to accomplish. And that can take a, a number of different forms. It could be literally a document, a product strategy document. It could also be the OKRs, the O in the OKRs, the objectives that you're looking to accomplish, right? Yeah. Then what you do is you, you articulate that, that context, that strategy, et cetera, that goal and objective down, and that's where the W starts to come down, and you get feedback and you say, okay, this is what we're looking to accomplish. You get feedback to ensure that this is a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal. It's something that gets people a little bit nervous, ideally gets them motivated, and because it's something that you're trying to accomplish that's going to be worth their while. And you're getting that feedback. And so then they spend time thinking, okay, given that's our objective, given that that's our strategy, et cetera. How can we actually accomplish that? And those are the individual teams that are then going back, and it's it's the triad, or I like to think of it as a quad. So you've got you've got engineering, product design. I like to have data in there as well, all supported by the PMO function, and they're actually iterating around. It's like, okay, given what we've already built, given our current roadmap, what do we think is going to be the best things for us to do to accomplish this particular goal? And so they kind of flesh it out. Don't take too long because you're not actually designing anything. You're just getting an idea of what makes sense. And this is where the seniority and the experience of the leaders that you're leading, right? So you're a leader of leaders, come, really comes into play. And that's when the W starts to come back up. It's like, okay, this is, this is the goal and this is the objective. This is what I think we can accomplish given the resources that we've got. And that's when we're going to have really interesting conversations because that's when trade-offs need to be made around the resources that you have, around the time it's going to take, et cetera, right? You've got time, money, and people. Those are the three, those are the three, three variables in the algorithm, right? And so that discussion is actually had, and, and there's a value in, in that discussion that's very, very keen because not only are your leaders that you're leading providing you feedback on, on what they can do, but it's also the feasibility of your strategy in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And so you make those trade-offs, you make the decisions, and, and you, you draw very clear, bright lines about what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. And sometimes those decisions, they're not always received favorably because there's some things that people really wanted to do, but it's like, not now. We, we can't do that. Out of these five things, we can only do three. We want to do three really well, not half-ass five, right? Yep. So you draw that line. It's like, okay. Off, to, off we go. So then the W comes back down. It's like, okay, out of those five things, we're actually doing these three. And there's a lot of, no, crap, I really wanted to do that thing. That was really fun and interesting or whatever. Or, you know, there's a lot of different passions that are involved, but that's where your leaders that you're leading help with the disseminating that message through the ranks. It's like, okay, then you do resource loading, resource balancing. 
And now it's commitment time, right? That's when it comes back up. And this is a meeting of the minds up and down the chain about what we're doing, what we're not doing, and how we're going to do it. And that's the point in time when you'll probably have some sort of annual kickoff. That's when you're going to be having a presentation that's going to cross the entire organization or entire company. And you're going to be saying, this is what this is. Here's the, the goals right off the top. Start from the top. The goals, the strategy, the objectives. This is the roadmap that we're putting together. These are the teams that are going to be executing. You make sure that everyone within the organization, as is appropriate, has a voice there. So it's not you as a leader doing all of the talking. That's the last thing you want to be doing. It's make sure the leaders that you're leading are actually have a voice. It's like, okay, I'm not going to be going to James for everything. I'm going to go to Billy or Jane or whoever it happens to is because they're actually leading. You're empowering, you're motivating your leaders who are going to be leading. And and then you're off, right? And then you start getting into the operation part of it. But yeah, that that's that's what we what I really experienced for the first time at Slack. And that's what we took into Spend Desk as well, to really take this start off startup into a scale up. Okay. So can we dive deeper into the the Slack experience? What what did go well? how did you start it? Because uh, it was the first time you implemented it. So what do you? So that was uh, that wasn't me. That was actually Tamar, the C- the CPO at the time. Okay. She actually led that. Okay. I think she I think she was the leader of that with the executive team at Slack. They they instituted that process. It made a ton of sense. I was obviously one of the leaders that was being led. Okay. <laughs> and when we went over to uh, Spendesk, I ad- adopted it wholeheartedly because it was very successful over there. Okay. Yeah. Cool. That's that's funny because I read about it. Last weekend, actually. Oh, funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's very effective. I've seen it come up a couple of different times in different contexts. I'm surprised it isn't as widely adopted as it is. But yeah, it, it, it it's a way for you to get feedback, like I say, on what you're trying to accomplish. But more importantly, you get alignment throughout the entire organization about what's what you're working on and why. Good. Thank you. A topic to dive deeper on, indeed. All right, so you did that at Slack. Before we 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 go to the interesting part about about Spendesk, you mentioned earlier the transformation of Microsoft and the change in culture and the fact that uh, it was moving super fast and every quarter it was something different. Can you tell me more about that? It was yeah, it was more it was more qualitative than quantitative, and that really is the definition of culture, probably. Before I I I, I joined. Microsoft, it was a very different era. There's that. Bill Palmer. It was, yeah, it was uh, Steve Barmer. Oh, Steve. Steve. Yeah. yeah and yeah. very, very sales driven, very numbers driven. But from a cultural perspective, there's there's that old cartoon where it was, I'm trying to remember how it, I'm going to really do a bad job of articulating this. You had different teams and how they collaborated and you had i forget which organization it was but it was a top down and then you had another organization of another company and it was you know three different pyramids all going top down and then you had the microsoft version which was lots of different groups all pulling guns on each other it was just it's just hyper hyper competitive and and so that i was a little nervous to be honest with you with that culture going in but with a different with a different CEO, I thought, okay, let's. And the opportunity was was a phenomenal one in terms of the impact that you can be having. And as a as a product leader, you're always looking to have impact. So I joined the company, 
and immediately the all hands that I was I was present on with with, with Satya, the types of leaders that he was promoting within the company, it was a an incredibly collaborative environment where Microsoft really excelled was in the way that the acquisition of a company was actually uh, handled and executed. Because as we've seen time and time again with, with acquisitions that happen, very few actually go very, very well. Oh, yeah. And getting out of that acquisition an accretive result where you know it, you've gotten more value out of what you paid for is often a big, big challenge. And it's really culture that dictates and guides how that acquisition is going to be absorbed into the organization as a whole. And there are lots of different ways to do it. But as this new new team organization based down in San Francisco was being brought into the Outlook organization as it sat within the office office organization, you're working with a lot of different groups, external groups, and then you start to work with different product groups as well, which is, I, I got a, I dug very deep into that part of it. And every quarter I could see a couple of different things were happening. First of all, there was a tremendous amount of respect that Microsoft paid this incredibly effective engineering and, and product organization within a company. It was clear that there was magic within that team. The company was the startup that was yes, acquired. Yes, that was acquired, exactly. There was magic in that team and the way that those the product was being built is something that you don't want to convert into the, into the old ways of Microsoft is what can we learn? There was a tremendous amount of humility that was involved. And so a lot of the, the practices that we were developing as we were going actually within, within the Outlook team started to be adopted across the organization. And a lot of that was around particular leaders within within the company team, the founders in particular, Kevin Henriksen, Javier Soltero. Javier Soltero ended up running Office 360, or the Office organization. He was running the, the Google Workspace organization as well, a phenomenal leader. And it's like, how do... How do Say the name, the name again. Javier Soltero. Oh, yeah. I think he was on the podcast recently with... A with He's now SVP of Enterprise over at Canva. I know. That's not the same. Different person? Okay. Okay. Yeah, different person. Yeah, so so yeah, you've got you've got these incredible leaders that obviously had, had some secret sauce in how they were doing things. And so Microsoft was adopting some of these these techniques. And and a lot of them were actually we were we were learning and we were building as as we were going. So how we're actually building products, how we're working with design, how you're working with different processes and tooling. A lot of that was we were building inside of, and this is where I I, I played a, a, a bigger role, was how are we building this product and scaling it rapidly, and then how do we disseminate those types of learnings throughout the throughout the organization? Then the other thing that I was seeing was, like I say, there was the increasing collaboration. There was also a move towards more data driven decision making. You could see that increase over time. There was the institution of of OKRs, how to actually put those in place and and make them work. Another key thing around the data driven. So, what what we take for granted in a, in a startup or a, a smaller company is that your end to end process 
is instrumented, your product all the way out through to your field, or if you're a PLG, you, you, you've got everything out to your website, et cetera. You've got this very clean funnel and everything is data-driven. Bef- before I joined, it was very much we're building the product, metaphorically throwing it over the fence for the field to actually pick up and then go out there and sell it phenomenal field organization and sales organization, but they were, they were very separate organizations. It was almost like a distribution company versus an engineering R&D company, and they just mm-hmm. happened to have a partnership and a collaboration. Very transactional. So what we did coming from Outlook was really take the, the product-led growth model that we'd already built within Outlook, and, and then I started working with an organization called Intune, and Intune is a security product out from uh, out from Microsoft. They do mobile application management, mobile device management, and it was very clear that Outlook came in at the the low end skew, the low end price point as an entry point. And ultimately, as a, as a company, we needed our customers to upgrade to Office three sixty five, Microsoft three sixty five, to go from a low end skew to a high end skew, and so. What I did was working with the Intune organization was identify, okay, if we can get customers to adopt a particular feature within Intune, it's going to be very, very clear that the value, the real value for working with Microsoft is to upgrade to the higher end SKU of Microsoft 365. And there you've got a clean pathway to increasing revenue, increasing margins, et cetera. Life is good, champagne and cocaine, so to speak. <laughs> And But the challenge is how to actually do that in an efficient way. And so what I was fortunate enough to be in a position because of this culture change was sit in between these organizations, between Outlook and Intune and the field organization and start knitting together a completely new go-to-market strategy and execution. So I pulled together... Again, not, not, nobody reported into me. This was a data science team from the central data organization. There were, I had data science engineers from the Intune organization. We had obviously engineers within the Outlook organization. And then I had a data team that was in the field organization. And their, their expert, and each of them was either building, instrumenting, creating dashboards for the, a particular service or a product or alternatively in the field, it was the CRM and the sales engagement. And so it was pulling all of these different disparate data science teams together Mm -hmm. to say, okay, this is how we're going to make this whole go-to-market motion more efficient and more effective, and this is why. And it was only because of this new cultural environment that Satya and the executive team that he had pulled together and nurtured that I was able to be in a situation where those partners were collaborative, they were open, they recognized that the rising tide raises all ships. And it wasn't a zero-sum game, which from what I gather was kind of the old Microsoft way of doing things. Here it was really, how do we all come together as one Microsoft? That was said over and over and over and over again within my, it's one Microsoft, one Microsoft, one Microsoft. And there I was, again, very fortunate to be in a position where I experienced that firsthand where you had various different people spread out all over the world, Mm -hmm. all coming together as a single Microsoft to build out this whole new way of going to market and to be successful. Wow. Cool. I can see that from the exterior. I mean, uh, Microsoft changed so much from a company that 
I would never join to company I would consider. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Satya seems to be a, a very inspiring leader indeed. Oh, absolutely. One of the books that I would definitely recommend is his book that he wrote in partnership, Hit Refresh. And so the it, after his, the first year of his tenureship as CEO, he put this book out and it does talk in great detail, actually, about the journey that he went on, a bit about his past as well that is very important for context, but then also talking about the conversations that they had with his executive team, how how he pulled that together, the type of culture, because he recognized that culture starts from the top. Mm-hmm. And he, yeah, I highly recommend that for all leaders to read that. It's There are lots of lessons that could be taken from that. Brilliant. Thank you. That's... Yep, another book on the list. <laughs> Good. Okay. Now, moving forward with Spendesk. So you moved to Paris. You leave the Bay Area. Was what three years ago? It was yeah. July the fifth, twenty twenty-one. Yeah, twenty-one. Right after Independence Day. Yeah. So we had a big July fourth party. Next day, we got on the plane and went to Paris. And so you were hired by the CEO yep. of Spendesk to lead product. To Correct. F- to become the CPO's chief product officer. Correct, yes. All right. So this is a new, st- I mean, this is a, a startup in the rise that was very promising, but not not a unicorn yet, was it? In, no, uh, no. So they, and this, it's, a, it's a pattern that you see very frequently. They were doing all the right things, and they were broken in all the right places. If, if, you're, if you're building perfection right from the word go, you will not be successful. You, you need to be moving very, very fast and understanding that some things are not going to be perfect. They're not going to be great, and that's perfectly fine. And so this was a, a company, is around 240 people at the time, and had developed very quickly it's a fintech company in the spend management space and had built out a dominant position going after SMBs, dominant in France, Germany, and the UK. And as you can appreciate, being with a very different regulatory environment and it being a financial services company, that was challenging. But these guys have pulled it off in a very short amount of time. Extraordinarily impressive group of individuals. And then I was recruited in because it was recognized by Rod, the CEO, that's okay, we need to we need to go to the next level. There the valuation was, I think it was around actually I probably can't say that, but it was it was not a billion dollars, that's for sure. It was a lot less than that. Okay. So I came in really to do my part in up leveling the organization and the company as a whole. So in charge of product and engineering? No, initially mm-hmm. it was just a chief product officer in charge of uh, product. So reporting into me was product management, design, and we had we didn't have program operations at the start, PMO, and the data or, and research team, we didn't really have a research team at all, now I think about it, but we had a number of people that were working, we had data analysts and data engineering, and they were over in the engineering organization when I, when I first joined. So tell me about your first 
impression in the company. I mean, uh, very impressive in terms of results. The fact that they grow so fast and they yeah. they, they got a dominant uh, position in uh, in three major countries in in Europe. That's impressive. Yes. Although it's a very different landscape uh, from a regulation point of view between the three countries, but yep. still they managed to pull that up. So, uh, okay, so you are the new CPU. What do you do? So the first thing you do as you're walking in is you very much put your learner's hat on. And that was a matter of sitting down. And it, it, it's it's what you do consistently going all, all the way back for forever. It's... I. As you're coming into an organization, they know more about everything than you do. It's my first time in fintech, for example. So I had a lot to learn there as well. And it's the first time I'd worked in Europe. Yeah. Right. I'd I'd done a lot of business in Europe with Microsoft, et cetera, but I'd never actually worked directly within these different countries. And so invariably what you have in these types of situations, now this could be this could be a startup looking to be a scale-up. It could be a division within a a public company such as Amazon, where you've you've made a lot of progress and you want to get to the next level. It could be a number of different companies that have been acquired into a single holding company by a private equity firm. It, this the, this situation is is not unique to startups. There are lots of public companies out there that can that are looking for more efficiency, more productivity, more effectiveness in the capital that they're investing. You don't have to be in a private private world to do that. And so, but what you do usually have is is a CEO with with a, a vision, and this is clearly what we had with uh, with Rod Adon. Very clear vision, and you've got. An engineer and organization that is working really hard to execute on what is being required to really, because it was a sales-led growth motion, an incredible revenue and commercial organization was built over there by Joseph Smith. Phenomenal job there. Is how do you keep on feeding that sales engine? So you've got execution at one end, and then you've got a vision at the top end. And as a CPO coming in, what you're really trying to do is understand both of those extremes and then build and the market, the context within which you're operating, and then create a product strategy. So again, you, you're really trying to find a way to create context. Because without that context, all of the conversations that you're going to be having with the leaders that you lead or the individual contributors and everybody else within the organization is not going to make sense. So you need to get everybody aligned with the product strategy. Now, the key here, though, is that, yes, you are responsible for the product strategy as the CPO, but it's not something that you, it's not yours, it's everybody's. You yeah. want everybody to be contributing to this. They're going to see their thumbprints, their fingerprints on this product strategy because ultimately you need them to be motivated and incentive and, and passionate about executing according to what you, where you see things going. And so you sit down with the rest of the people on the executive team, which was kind of small back then, and you're mind melding with them, understanding you know their current context, what they're working with, the problems that they have, where they see the market going, et cetera. You're spending a lot of time with the sales organization in particular because they're close to the customers. Customer success is absolutely key because they're understanding the challenges that your customers currently have. And really that helps you understand the baseline. Okay, that that's your starting point. And then 
what you do is you're, and then you're also talking to individual contributors or other leaders that are maybe not on the executive team, but they clearly have been around for a long time, the OGs of the organization, so to speak. And if anyone's got a question, ah, you need to ask Nicola this, or ah, you need to ask Victor that, or something like that. And so you spend a lot of time with them, again, trying to get up to speed. And and then you start to formulate these hypotheses that you're that you're bringing together, and you're kind of almost doing a mini W process. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, so does this kind of make sense to you? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But what about this? What about the other thing? And so you get you're constantly getting feedback. And so when you actually, and it's the same with whether you're rolling out a product strategy, whether you're rolling out a reorganization, when it actually happens, no one's surprised. Because you've already been communicating, you've already been taking feedback from everybody. They may be surprised by the articulation, but in a good way. It's like, wow, this is this is awesome. This is what I want to be spending eight hours or more a day for the next four or five years of my life doing. Because that's ultimately what you're trying to do is not only provide a path for people, but provide an exciting path that people yeah. are going to charge, charge down f- for you and with you. So you mentioned you 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 want to be transparent with your teams about what's coming next and potential reorganization so how do you approach that because uh, in many companies i've seen that those are those real discussions are done behind closed doors and that brings a lot of anxiety in teams because people believe that they would have a different job or may lose their job and sometimes you have to because you don't have the right players anymore or you need you don't need the, the team that you have in place now may not be the ones that you need to get to the next point so how do you approach that in a transparent way but uh how do you do that yeah there's 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 a lot to unpack there the the the, the first step is getting to understand that you need a reorg in the first place right these things are, are very difficult to formulate and execute, so you don't want to be doing this lightly. Where it, it where it happened with Spendesk was, as I was using the product, as I was talking to different engineering leaders, as I was seeing how the product was being ultimately released within Slack, because you're looking at the Slack channels and you can see how how different engineering teams and different and different squads are collaborating about how they're actually releasing the product. It's very clear to me, because I've been working with world-class engineering leaders all my career, very fortunate in that sense, that some changes were definitely going to be needed. And the reality is, is that you, you've this isn't a knee-jerk reaction. This is just, you know, it's just it's just the data. Right, it's uh, it's 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 back to what I was saying before around context. It's like okay, the the number of bugs and how they're accruing, that number's going up, and that's not good, right? Right. The fact that we a feature that was estimated to take about six weeks, you know, eighteen months down the road, and it still hasn't been pushed out, or it's like the third or fourth time we've actually iterated on this problem. That's also not good, and, and nobody wants to operate in that environment, right? The fact that, and, be, and the reason why it is taking so long is because the team was moving so fast, we ended up with a monolithic code base and everything that comes along with that, right? Mm-hmm. No, nobody, Nobody's saying, no, we want a monolith. Nobody's saying that, right? Nobody's saying, yes, we want so. Nobody's saying that either. And so there's just a recognition of, of, of the current status quo and being transparent about that. The key thing is, though, it's nobody's fault. 
nobody nobody did any of this consciously they were constantly making trade-offs and decisions that got them to the success that they have and there's there's a point in the in the growth of the organization where it's kind of like the piper needs to get paid it's like okay we can only go so far and so fast with this amount of tech debt we need to we need to burn that tech debt down but and so th- this was when this was when I was asked to take on the the chief technology officer role. Now I'd never been a CTO before, but again I'd, I'd been fortunate enough to work alongside engineering leaders that are phenomenal. Kevin Henriksen from Outlook. You've got San U over from Slack. I lent on San uh, tremendously. I even got him dialed in with our engineering leaders to you know give him some talks and coaching around how to actually run engineering organizations. What's important? What are the key principles? Things like that. I mean, he was very gracious to do that. And once we'd kind of come to an agreement on where we needed to go, it was a matter of, okay, how are we actually going to get there? And then one of the directors of engineering that was reporting into me, Damien, he said, look, we need to be perform- we need to go through this uh, reverse Conway method, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, fantastic. Okay. So, and, and, and so this is one of these points where I'm coming, I'm a product guy and I'm leading engineers. So I'm clearly not the expert. And Damian is clearly the expert. It's like, okay, that's, tell me more about that. That looks like a really good idea. And it's about, okay, how do you actually implement that and execute that? Have you and, read Team Topologies? Yes. Yeah. I mean, if it's, it's a, James, you need to read this book. So, so that weekend I read that book. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was actually was skiing and I, I read it while we went on the slopes. And so an immediate, it's like, okay, now I understand because you're, it, the, the whole idea of value-aligned squads, the whole idea of specialization and how sub-teams are going to be operating, what what a platform or an infrastructure team actually looks like and how that's going to be organized. It, I'm an engineer by, by training, mm-hmm. even though I haven't written code in a very, very long time. And so it all made complete sense to me. The next thing is, okay, how do we actually implement that, right? And, and then it, it was... I played the role of setting the context, whereas, look, this is what we're looking to accomplish, and clearly this isn't what we've got today isn't going to get us there. And these types of messages are constantly going to be resonating with the individual engineers because an engineer as a creator, right, wants to see their creations out in the world. And if it's taking months or sometimes more quarters or years to get their creations out into the world, they're not being self-actualized as humans, as people. Yep. And your job as a leader is to remove these roadblocks, to provide people the, the ability to enable them to actually self-actualize. That's really what you're trying to do as a leader. And so you provide this context, the context on the engineering side, which is obviously within the context of the product strategy, which is in the context of the vision of the company and the market opportunity that we've got. And so you're crystallizing all of this down. And then what it's a matter of is in terms of once you get down to the execution part of it and how are these teams all going to get structured, then you lean on the fact that you are leading leaders. And it's those leaders that are were taking points to so Raphael and Damien in particular taking lead and working with each of their engineering managers and their tech leads, working out in the context of not only what we're trying to accomplish, but the constraints that we have. We have a monolith. How are we going to split that? Is split that really the right thing? Turns out that it isn't the right thing. So this is a an iteration that's gone through. And every time you keep on coming back to the skill set that you have available, where those resources should be allocated 
according to the priorities that you have, and then having a surfacing of the constraints within which you're operating. And throughout this entire process, we're having right off the bat, it was it was weekly all hands. And the questions that that are coming out are very why are we doing this? And sometimes it would be good questions like, great, fantastic, how when can we get going? And other times like why are we doing this? Very pointed questions that you need to be able to answer. The reality is, is that you will schedule and you should schedule like six weeks of weekly all hands. After the third week, everyone's kind of bored of them. Mm-hmm. And it's okay, let's go for bi-weekly. And then, okay, let's do it monthly. But the whole point is, is that early on, you want to communicate early and you want to communicate often. And while you're doing this as well, as your engineering leaders are talking to their individual engineering managers, tech leads, et cetera, your key people that are in the organization, the three people, if they got hit by a bus, you'd have a problem. And we definitely had them. That you're sitting down with them and getting their feedback, ensuring that they understand that this isn't something you're doing frivolously. We understand that this is this is really hard for everybody concerned and what it means to them and how do they feel about it. And ultimately, and the message that I kept on coming back, regardless of whether it was engineering or product or anything, it was like, help me, the individual contributor, to help me project myself into this future. They wanted to see a path for their career, a path for their ultimately their self-actualization. And as a leader, that's probably one of your biggest roles is how to help them understand where they fit into this new world. And that's going to give them the motivation to push through the hard things that are going to have to happen. You're no longer going to be working with your with with this buddy, or you're going to be working with somebody that you never had a relationship with, or maybe you didn't really get along with them very well beforehand, or something like that. And so again, you're you're having these types of conversations constantly, and you're having regular check-ins. And then the other key thing as well is you want to be putting in place a sense of urgency. So how do you do that? Because that's tricky. I mean, when people are in their role, which they have been for many years and they are good at what they do, you don't want to to burn them. You don't want them to, to deliver more you you want them to deliver on bigger things or more pointed things. So how do you create this sense of urgency and say really need to act fast? Yeah. So as a as a chief product officer slash CTO, CPTO, recognizing the situation that we're in on on the engineering side of the house, and it's not when I I'll say engineering, but it's the whole organization, right? It's PDE, product development engineering. Yeah. The first thing the first thing that you need to do is sit down with your chief revenue officer and have a very honest and open conversation about where we're at. And and so I, I had that conversation with Joe and it was the nuts and bolts of us how would the business fare if we didn't ship another feature for nine months? And then you have that that honest conversation and you could see where the metrics were going and we're in very good shape. We're a leader in the marketplace. You're looking at metrics yourself, and so ASPs, average selling prices, were going up. Our loss rate was less than 20%. That's good. In fact, he wanted to actually get our loss rate even higher because it meant that the front end of our funnel wasn't wasn't wide enough. Okay. 
And in competitive situations, competitive bids against our direct competitors, we were winning, I forget the percentage, but a good healthy number of them. I think it was like 80% of them were doing very, very well. Wow. Yeah, no, a phenomenal company, phenomenal product, great brand, marketing was awesome. And so that gave us the license, right, to actually do that. And so you're linking arms with the CRO because that's a message that needs to go out to the entire company. It's like, okay, this is what this is what's happening. And so, and then the next part is it's like, okay, so we've got we've got nine months to work with. What you need to be doing, you've got ultimate ambiguity, right? Uncertainty as the the senior executive because you're not writing the code, you haven't looked at any code. Yeah. You you're you're taking a lot of signal from various different people. When a company is early on in its in its in its life, and let's be honest, back when I first joined Outlook Mobile, there's no instrumentation, there's no data at all. With Slack, it was minimal, and we had to do a lot of instrumentation once I'd landed there. With, with Spendesk, there was nothing at all, and so you're really basing a lot of your decisions off of qualitative, subjective feedback that you're getting from people that you're working with, and you, there needs to be trust that's established. There's like, okay, if you say nine days, I believe you. It's nine days. And so you're taking all of these, but then you need to make a decision like, okay, when are we going to re- release this? Organization 1.0 or we had Outlook 2.0. It's like, when are we going to do this? And you all, you're almost picking an arbitrary date. You're using your own experience and you're kind of going, okay, this feels like a quarter. This feels like two quarters, something like that. And you draw a line in the sand, and you don't just come out and say that you you meet with the leaders of leaders that you have, the the leaders that you have. And you just say, okay, so we can get this done by June 1st, right? And then you look them in the eye and you see how much white in their eyes. It's like, okay, that feels like, that feels, yeah, okay. It's not exactly, I like the Andretti quote. If you're not going, if if you don't feel, if you're not a little scared, you're not going fast enough. Yeah. And so you you have that and you look around the table with your other leaders and you say, okay, this I think we can do. It's going to be a challenge, but it should be a challenge. It should be hard. If if the response from there is like yeah sure no problem then you, you okay. okay you need yeah. to rethink that date, and that's basically what we did. We said okay, we're going to be uh, re- doing an announcement. Or we're going to be launching the new organization on July one. It would have been twenty twenty two. So July one, and you are, and, and which date is when you have that conversation with uh, your leaders? That conversation would have been. It's either the end of December or the beginning of January. Okay, so I think we're we're having the conversation. We started having the conversation about the reorganization back in October, and we actually did a mini reorganization. I mean, literally, it was moving three people around. But I, I so reteaming, reteaming. Maybe that's the best way to do it. It's a tiny, tiny thing. But that's when I ran into a little bit of, of uh, French culture with the CSE. Oh the, yeah, the uh, the workers' council. Um, so you, you've got, for those that have not worked in France, you've you've got a workers' council that is made up of employees. And long story short, you need to check off any reorganizations or material changes in an individual's roles and responsibility. You need to sign off from them first before you can move forward. And, and that's fine. They signed off on it. We moved forward. And that was actually what we were doing with the data team, I think it was at the time. So yeah, we're having this conversation around, okay, we need to do the reverse Conway move. We need a reorganization. Let's do the reverse Conway move. How are we thinking about... But for the people who don't know what the reverse Conway move is, can you... Yeah, yeah on that? definitely. So ultimately, the the architecture that you have is a residual side effect of the organization that built it. 
So we are talking about the software architecture. Correct. So you are designing an app and yes. software, and you design your app based off the, the structure you put in place at the time you coded the, the application. Exactly, but it's not a conscious thing. It just no. it's organic. Yeah. So if you've got you know fifteen engineers or twenty engineers or fifty engineers, and they're all kind of running around this code base, building features as quickly as possible to meet sales needs. It's going to be an it's going to be amorphous in the way that their teams are operating, and that is going to end up ultimately with some sort of a monolithic code base, to a certain extent. And with Spendesk, it was the extreme. It was a single a single library and a single repository, uh, which was fine. Again, it got it yeah. got us to where we needed to go. So what you do is with with the reverse Conway move is you you take a step back, and this is where products really can help. The CPO can really help the CTO here is understanding. Because you're building value-aligned teams. What does that mean? Stream-aligned. Or stream-aligned, yeah. So a stream-aligned or a value-aligned team is is a single team with a single mission that is, is coherent and independent, decoupled. It's probably the easiest way to put it. So what we did was, oh, and then you've also got uh, subsystem teams, and you can think of those as your, say, your ML or AI team where they will be building functionality to solve a particular problem that a stream-aligned team already has. Once you've got that ML model in good shape, they kind of decouple and they become a central resource that other stream-aligned teams could use, but you're deeply embedding with the value-aligned team for a certain amount of time. Then you've got your infrastructure team, which they're about building on top of usually AWS or Azure or whatever. And they're they're really about stability, reliability, scalability, and security. Their goal is to make it as easy as possible for developers in streamlined teams to get the resources that they need as quickly and easily as possible. It needs to be no speed bumps at all. I need I need an instance, boom, you've got okay. it. I need this service, boom, you've got it. Microsoft, boom, it's, it's just there. We, we call them those teams as a service. Basically, they offer everything as a service. Perfect. Yeah, and, and Amazon being the obvious progenitor or the originator of that whole approach. So one with with that... And then you've also got, as part of that infrastructure team, you may also have the the DevOps team in there as well. Their customers are the engineers themselves. They're looking at the tooling. They're looking at the instrumentation. How do you make engineers not only as productive and as efficient as possible, but happy? Again, we're talking about creators. They want to create. Everything else is just bureaucracy and speed bumps to them. So, so, So what you do is you take a step back. And again, being in the situation where I was taking on both roles, I was fortunate enough to understand and see that our value, and that's why I called them value aligned as opposed to stream aligned, is we got them in aligned with individual personas, user personas. So within Spendesk, we had the employee, mm-hmm. the budget manager, and the finance team. And there were, there were sub-personas as well, but that's fine. So you've got these three personas. And then because you've got these three personas with specific workflows and user journeys that they're working on, the problems that need to get solved, then you can have a squad come together, aggregate around those problems, those personas. And a couple of different things are happening that are very important. First of all, you've got you've got focus, you've got prioritization, you've got speed because they know exactly what they need to do and, and how they want to do it. But you also have identity. And that's really important because identity facilitates teamwork, facilitates cohesion, that then facilitates efficiency, that then facilitates velocity. Yeah. 
right? So because I'm no longer a part of this team and a part of that team, and I do a little bit of work over here and a little bit of work over there. And some key people were absolutely crucial and they felt very valued and very important because their code was everywhere. But you're building an organization not for three people, you're building it for 30 or 300 or more, right? And so you need to be able to scale that and a sense of identity is absolutely key. So you've got that stream-aligned, value-aligned team that aligns up perfectly with the product of the PM organization because then you want to have specialization over there. So you've got that alignment across the entire squad with designers that take two particular forms more, but you've got the designer assigned to a particular value-aligned team. So they're really understanding the user journeys that they're building for, the problems that they're solving, partnering very closely with PM. You've got a system designer that's providing the information architecture and the overall context within which the user is going to operate. You've also got engineers are really, really happy because now they've got a DevOps team. Because you've now got a DevOps team, you're not trying to borrow a person from here and there. You've got this as an identity. This needs resourcing to build out and mature and evolve the whole engineering organization as you're moving forward. So I'll, I'll pause there. Yeah. Does so, that answer the question? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So what we've been talking for the past 10 minutes is basically some of the bricks or what, what is described in the team topologies, the fourth, uh, the four team topologies. We didn't mention the enabling teams, but... Uh, yeah, I called it DevOps, the enabling the DevOps, team. Yeah. Yes, exactly. But but yeah, so it's essentially you have four families of uh, topologies or teams that you, you can use and you design your organization based off those ideas and your concepts. So we are still early in the year in 2022, I guess. And and you are, you know, discussing that with your leaders of leaders. Yes. At what point are you engaging with the rest of the organization to get the, the you know, their inputs? Because you, I feel that uh, what you are describing right now is you are on the whiteboard and you put the boxes, you are designing how everything should work and say, okay, we need those people, we need that people, we need ideally this group of people but it's still a plan it's still yeah. very high level yeah it it is and and to be absolutely clear this is a conversation that I'm, I'm having not only with the engineering leaders the product leaders but also the marketing leaders as well because mm-hmm. we're changing how we think about personas which changes your messaging it changes your value proposition impacts your pricing and packaging yeah. so the types of decisions that you're making impact the entire organization yeah downstream impact absolutely yeah so the next thing that you do is, and that was in, in January, everyone gets back from the, the, the holiday vacation and, and you have a kickoff. And you, you, again, you talk about the context that you're in. You're, you're talking about what you're looking to accomplish and what you're looking to achieve. So you've got this W that's, that's been happening and you've got the goals that you've got for the year. So executive team has signed off on this. This is how we're going to accomplish it. We're going to do this reorganization and we're going to release it. We're going to an- announce it, execute it on July 1, right? So they so know six, six months. months ahead of time. Wow. So how do you deal with that potential anxiety, you know, for six months? How do you deal with that? Because they say, oh, it's something big is coming, but I don't know what type of data do you share or how much do you share with the, the group? Because why, why does it take so long to uh, to implement? Right. So the first thing is as we're as we're, we're devising this 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 streamline this topology. 
the conversation has already been happening. So immediately, my senior leaders are talking to engineering managers. So, and you know, an organization is organic. It's yeah. an organization, right? And so there's there are conversations that are already being had, and they knew that an, a reorganization was going to happen. And it's a it's a case of successive revelation, because you are you're kind of working it out as you go along. With with much much larger organizations, and I've been in those situations where all of a sudden the bandaid is ripped off and everyone's getting reorged. That can be extraordinarily disruptive, and I'm a strong believer in the fact that. You can take your employees and your team leaders along that journey with you, and so there aren't there shouldn't be really any surprises, as long as everybody's bought into what you're looking to accomplish, right? If if it's a if it's a layoff, then that's a very different situation. Yeah. We were not in this situation. Just to be absolutely clear, it was taking people that we have, it was to move them into different boxes, it was to bring clarity to their role and their responsibility. It was also to be able to articulate where we needed to hire. Right, because you could look at what we needed to build, and you could say, "Okay, we need to increase engineering by twenty percent." But it's really hard to articulate where those twenty percent would actually put until we'd actually got a, a rational organization in place. So, again, this is this is a this is something. This is a happy thing that we're doing, right? This is not a sad thing. This is not a layoff or a riff or anything like that. This is something that is in, in, intended to instill and inspire. And so, you can be a little bit more porous with your communication. So, so just to understand, so you go back in January. Everyone is uh, happy. It's a galette time in France, so they enjoy <laughs> thing. So, uh, king's cake and uh, and everything. So, uh, so you announce okay in things from in July on July first, yes. we will do a big reorg. Yes, but how much do you share about that reorg? So you, you explain. The, the vision where you want to go, the yes. context you are in. So basically, you understand that there must be a path to it. Yes. Are you explaining that path, or I say, in the next coming uh, in the coming month, we will explain what that path would look like. Yes. So I can visualize it now. I I, I presented a, a a slide that essentially had those value aligned streams and incorporated everything from engineering out through program operations which was a new function to be built okay and ha and already had the directors or the tbhs okay because to be hired yep to be hired did not have a senior director of, of pr uh, product management did not have a leader in, in design did not have a leader in pmo did the function didn't even exist Talent acquisition, you said as well. Uh, yeah, so that's right. And so our chief people officer had just been recruited in a little bit after me. And so, you know, at a startup, you, you're, you're building the car as you're driving down the freeway. Yeah. And so as she was working, Aaron was working on a lot of the fundamentals that were needed within the organization to to level up how we were operating there was a a very clean and and well functioning talent acquisition on the on the on the sales side on the commercial side but we didn't really have it on the engineering side and so as Aaron was bringing in new leaders hrbps and talent acquisition managers we couldn't wait until they were on board but as they were coming in so we were building out talent acquisition as we were going we we're building our own own funnels and everything else and uh, working with uh, with recruiters to find to scour Europe for the best and best and brightest to join the team to help us, and so back in January, 
as presenting out this slide, which which with all of the bubbles in place, like okay, folks, this is this is what we need to build. This is and this is well, this is what where we are. This is what we need to build. This is why we're building it. And then the who are in these boxes, and I would say maybe forty percent of them were filled. We had a lot of empty boxes. So names were listed in names the boxes. Were in there. So, so people go- say, oh, now I'm going there. Okay. Well, no, no, no. Only of the leaders. The, oh, the leaders. The director level. Okay, okay, okay. Right? So, yeah, there was... So, we had the leaders already in place, and we had... Actually, that's not true. No, that is true. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we had we had a lot of blank boxes. And so, the next piece... And, it, again, radical transparency is like, this is what we're hiring for, and this is, uh, this is the, the direction that we're going in. <clears throat> now, what... What can happen, though, is you've got these boxes with very attractive titles like Director of X there, and you're going to have very good, smart, junior folks or more junior folks are going to say, I I want that position. And it's natural. You want people to be ambitious. You want them to perform and really, you know, go for the brass ring. But then you need to have some conversations with them saying, I really appreciate that. You, you're very good at what you do, but these are the things that you need to be in place. These are the experiences you need to have before you can take on a role like that. Because if you did that right now, you'd probably fail. It would not be good for you or good for the company. And that's a very difficult conversation to have. Yeah. When, when I landed, we did not have, we did not have career journeys in place. And so the way that people were thinking of getting recognition was mostly along the lines of, I need to have more people reporting into me, I need to have a bigger title, I need to have more salary, et cetera. And there was no clear, rec- there was no clear path about how do I go from being a PM, and there, was, there wasn't even levels, but a, a junior PM up to a, a recognized PM, I think was another title, and then into a senior PM, and then a PM, et cetera. And so what what I put in place work, working with the HRBP, I, I took career journeys that I'd, I'd used in the past, detailed it all out. And the types of conversations that were had was like, okay, I want to have this position. I said, okay, where do you think you are right now with these skills? And it'd be across everything from, from product sense, execution, leadership, communication, cultural ambassador, things like that. And just have a really honest conversation. It's like, yeah, and these these are these are very smart, accomplished and self-aware people. It's like, I've got this, got that. Yeah, I don't know how to do this yet. Oh, I haven't done that before. It's like, yeah, okay, great. This is wonderful. Because now you're having a career conversation, right? And say, okay, so this is what I commit to you is I will get you there. The way to get you there is if you sit in this so-called box, if you have this responsibility today and you work with this person, and you can work with me directly on mentoring, or you can work with that person on mentoring, et cetera. We can get you this type of a training, et cetera. This is where HR and you as a functional leader really need to come together. And so we had those types of conversations, and some of them were very challenging for sure. And so, but you're having those very early on. And so people are starting to, like I was saying before, project themselves into that next role. And you really are depending on the leaders that you're leading and their leaders to actually continue to have those conversations and having these weekly AMAs, having the one-on-ones, having the brown bags, you're constantly reinforcing context, answering questions, allaying people's fears and concerns. Most people don't like change. 
it's really hard to deal with. But what I found going through that experience is folks are more, they're more accepting of change than you probably think. We live in a very dynamic world. We live in a very dynamic society. People are, we went through a pandemic, right? Yeah. And so people are, of, are more Sorry. resilient than yeah. you think. And as long as you're open and honest with them, then they're usually, they'll usually support you. Any challenge along the way? Any what, sorry? Any challenges that you, you faced along the way? There, because it's a long period, it's six months to get there, to build a team. Yeah. And uh, I believe that by July 1st, you had still empty boxes here and there. I had, by, by that time, I had all of the big boxes filled. Okay. That was working really hard. Arian was, the chief people officer, did an incredible job getting people over the line. We partnered very closely on how to actually do talent acquisition for these senior leaders. Working, went through a whole, because I'd, I'd never worked in Europe before, so I didn't have any connections in with the uh, the local recruiters. And so interviewed a whole bunch of recruiters, got them on board. And again, with, through that partnership, we were getting these leaders over the line, getting them onboarded. And so we had an offsite when was that? June is before the summer vacation. We had that offsite in June. Took the entire organization down to Aix-en-Provence, and there it was a kickoff and a celebration because it was here is the product strategy. Here are our goals for this year. Here is the organization with all of these bubbles filled in, and here are the leaders that are going to be leading you. And so we had a fireside chat with all of these new leaders. Mm -hmm. And so they all sat around and introduced themselves and had this fireside chat. And so you had the people that were going to be leading them sat there on the stage, involved in the offsite, meeting them in a casual environment where they could get to know them, start building those bonds, start building that trust. So that was in, in June. And so when the the starting gun was fired on July 1. It was like, okay, back to work. Okay. And it was incredibly... Now, you asked me what challenges there were. So one was around taking people on that career journey. There was another challenge as well. And this is, is going to happen, I would imagine, absolutely every single time. There are going to be those people that were better suited and better enjoyed the previous environment than the new environment. In particular, when you're talking about a startup going into a scale-up, you've got those entrepreneurs or engineers with an entrepreneurial spirit that enjoy the rough and tumble, the scrappiness of that early stage startup. And they can see the rigor, the process, the structure that you're putting in place. And you're putting that in place in order to get more productive, more efficient, more effective, and ultimately happier as you're moving and you're accomplishing your goals. They interpret it, they can interpret that as bureaucracy yeah. and process with a, in, a, in a bad way. And, and that's that's fine. And so we did have some significant and key leaders decided to not go forward with this this journey, which was unfortunate, but it was absolutely the right thing. They went off, they founded their own companies, they're doing very well. It's just that there's that point of ambiguity, especially when you've got leaders that have followership themselves. And so ensuring that 
you can maintain and retain the talent that you need to take you on that journey as you've got maybe key people are going to be leaving. That takes a, a, a lot of communication and a lot of, a lot of leadership as well. And again, you need to be able to delegate and delegate and empower those people that you're also leading to carry that out. You cannot be everywhere. No. You cannot have all of the conversations you want to have. There are only so many hours in the day. And you're also talking about an organization that's spread across three different, at least three different countries. So you've got to do what you can and making sure that you're providing the context and empowering those people that can be there to kind of represent you and represent the strategy and why you're doing what you're doing. Brilliant. Okay. I think you you talked about one of the challenges that you faced in the beginning because everything was scrappy in the beginning, as you you mentioned also about the the entrepreneurial aspect of people that there was no much accountability or or it was not really I mean the meetings were not driven properly there was it was very organic the way things we're doing so um so you you want to bring uh, more structure more clarity also in the way you operate the business so how do you how do you bring that accountability because as you said i mean some people decided to leave because that's not for them and uh, and that's fine we need we we have different we are all different we have different needs and and they are different i would say environment that are good or, or bad for us depending on the personality that we have and the and and our, and our personal needs so um, how do you put the structure in place uh, that you mentioned so people would say yeah i'm accountable to report the data uh, accurately on a regular basis and how do you do that how do you create that culture yeah there's there are a few things there are a few things to look at when you when you're thinking about how to actually do this so especially when you're going into into a, an early stage startup where the the PDE, the R&D, the tech team, whatever you want to call them, they tend to be focused, they see the measure of success as shipping, shipping a feature. Okay, we launched something, check, we're, we're good, this is great, ship, ship party, we're all good, let's have some bit and off we go. That, that can take you so far. But it be ends up becoming a, a detriment to the organization. You can turn into a feature factory, tech debt accumulates, etc. At the same time, you look on the other side of the fence, and whether it is you know demand generation and marketing in a PLG company, or whether it's the sales and commercial organization, the revenue organization that's doing the selling, they've got metrics. It could be, and it, it boils down to dollars or euros, right? Mm -hmm. And so it, it's very clear, you know, you've got a budget, you've got a goal to hit. Did you hit it or did you not? It's uh, you live or die by the numbers. It's absolutely clear. When you're coming into, into an early stage company or a company that is kind of lost or a group uh, that's kind of lost its way and the focus more on, on shipping features, they've lost the reason or the contribution that they're making to the company overall. And so the first thing to focus on is, okay, what are we doing that's going to drive the business? And that's the big difference as you go from this, this early stage start, startup into a growth startup, into a scale-up, is you, you progress from building, building a product to building a company to building a business. And those are three different things. So early on, as you're trying to find product market fit, it's all about building the product. What the hell is people going to use? And that's a really hard thing to do. The zero to one, and then there's getting product market fit, two very different things. Then you've got 
building. So that's that's building the product. Then you've got building the company. It's like okay, so we need to have a good finance team with a good CFO. We need to have a good HR team with a good CPO, etc. We need to have bringing a CPO, bringing a CTO, etc., and have the organizer. That's building a company. Building a business is getting all of that to work in concert. So it's as a leader, you're bringing into the organization the fact that what you're doing is you're creating functionality, you're creating value, and the reason to do that is to build a business that's going to help us drive a particular unit economic. The most rudimentary and the worst one you can have is actually revenue from mm -hmm. an engineering perspective because there's nothing laggier than revenue. But you can look at things like customer acquisition costs, you can look at net retention rates, CAC payback, average selling price, etc. There's lots of different metrics that you can use. Your job as, as a leader is to be able to translate that back into metrics that can be influenced or driven directly by the product itself. And so now we're starting to touch on the, the how of yeah. your question which is now you've got something that could be called an objective or a key result. An objective is to be number one at X. An objective is to be the, the leader in the enterprise of that, right? The KR is what's really important. That's what's going to really provide the context for accountability. The key result, it is a quantifiable metric that once you see it go over a particular point, it will be proof or validate the fact that the objective has been achieved, right? Yep. And so the objective is to climb Mount Shasta, right? What's your KPI? Is right one step at a time. One step at a time is you go, how many steps? You should take us Everest, 29,000 feet. Okay, how many feet have we gone? We've gone 1,000 feet. Okay, great. We've gone, we're at 28,950 feet. Have we achieved our objective? No. 29,000 feet, have we achieved our objective? Yes, okay, great. So we can either look at the view or we can look at the metric. Either of them kind of tells us the same thing. So once you've got that OKR in place, then you need to cascade that down into what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. And part of it will be the, the creation of your roadmap, and that reflects into the shipping part of it. And we can talk a lot about how to create roadmaps and the two essentially different types of roadmaps. And then you've you've got the what's the the KPI or the metric you're trying trying to move, and and that's very important because that is what you're going to be moving after the feature is shipped, and that is back on the engineering side. You ship it, you own it. Yeah, right. Part of that sentence is it's got to be high quality performance, reliability, and quality needs to be high. Bugs, etc. No regressions, etc. The other part of it that folks it'd be good to pay more attention to is that you're getting the value out of what's being shipped. It's not just, yeah, it's checked and it all, it all works, but is it moving the needle? What's the needle and is it moving? And that's where you need to be working very closely with PM. You need to be working with uh, demand generation, whatever it happens to be. You've got the flywheels turning. Is it an engaged user? Is it a successful user? Whatever it happens to be, but that's that's what that squad needs to be focused on. It's not just shipping the feature. It's 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 accruing the value. Yeah. Right. So now you've gone one click down. You actually understand the metric that you're going. So then then the next click next click down into that is is really the rhythm of business that you're setting up. Right. And so 
you've got your annual roadmap, you break that down into quarters, and you've got your beginning quarter kickoff, and then you've got your QBR, your quarterly business review, and then you'll have your mid-quarter check-in, right? And so what you end up, so you've got three points in a quarter where you're actually touching base and digging into these OKRs and your roadmap, et cetera. Where are your risks? Where are your dependencies? What's ahead of schedule? What isn't ahead of schedule, right? What are our challenges? And then from there on that three, those three check-ins, then you've got your weekly stand-ups, et cetera. And it gets to the, it gets to the point where that once you've got that level of sophistication, you, you really do need the PMO function, right? Where you want your engineers to be focused on, on what you're building. You want product to be focusing on, on the the problem, the value, the opportunity. You want design to be focused on the solution. All of those can come from any discipline, but it's the ultimate responsibility. And then you've got your data and research that are providing the insights either into what's already out there or what you're going to what you're going to be building, right? And so, and then underneath all of that is PMO, because each of those four disciplines, what they're doing in isolation is extraordinarily hard, and you want to be getting as much value out of those individuals as possible. The operational, the logistics. That you, if you can offload that onto the PMO, then you're going to have a dashboard. You're going to have visibility into your risks, into your uh, dependencies, etc. That's going to give you the visibility that you need to make decisions, and it's going to offload a lot of cognitive load of those individual experts that are creating the product. And you're going to be able to have that accountability and that rhythm of business that's going to enable you to again back up, yeah. have your quarterly reviews. Make sure that you're launching on time. Make sure you're recouping the the value of the investments that you made. Make sure that you're hitting your K, KRs that's achieving your objectives. I love that. That's funny because we have been we have been through that journey, and it requires a lot of um, education and a, a lot of you know communication uh, early and often. It's clearly the thing. Yeah, the one thing to keep in mind there is don't don't let the perfect get in the way of the good. Yeah. And so what was extremely gratifying as we were going through this this whole process of first instituting these quarterly check-ins, et cetera, is that every quarter you were getting better and better. And as a leader, you kind of you if it's if it's not hugely important, but it's not the way you'd like it, and I made this mistake many times actually, is don't worry about that. Focus on on the key things. Right. Make sure that you're continually getting better and better every quarter, and make sure that the things that get that the things that get better soonest are the ones that should be. If that makes sense, got to find a better way to articulate that. No, I got it. I got don't it. sweat the small yeah. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That's good. Cool. Thank you so much for all those insights and uh, and the story. Anything to close on on the story of Spendesk and uh, before we we move to. Uh, the closing part? Nothing. I mean, I mean, I'm extremely grateful for the experience. It was a big lift. It was very hard for everyone that was in the trenches doing it. As you're, like I say, building the cars, you're driving down the freeway. It definitely gave me a, a better appreciation of operating in a multicultural environment. Yeah. In, in the US, we have a lot of people like you and I that are from somewhere else. But we we chose to come here, and we're we're probably a little different to folks that didn't. 
And so even having worked with with a, a lot of French people, with Brits and with people from Germany, etc., this is the first time really in the trenches in their environment. Yeah. And so I had a lot of appreciation, made a ton of mistakes, but that's that's all part of the journey. And it's only through making mistakes that you actually learn. And if you're not making mistakes, then you're doing it wrong. Can you share a story of a, about a mistake that you did? Sure. I don't, let's see, there's, I don't know if we've got time for this, but it was actually around planning. So, which it sounds, it sounds strange, but so we'd, we'd, within, within, within PDE, we'd gone through the process of, of devising what our, our annual roadmap should be. And it, it's very common here in the States where you take the objective and, and you haven't got the time to analyze every possible combination and permutation of what you could do and therefore mathematically divine the absolute best path mm-hmm. and make the decision there. What you do is you use your experience and the knowledge that you have available to bound the problem. You eliminate those things that are on the edges until you can find a a path through that you may not know every single step, but you know enough to get started. And the experience that you and your team has can say, okay, we can do this. It's going to take us about this long. T-shirt sizing. And so I'm presenting this out to to my my colleagues and- Who are French. Who are French. And they- and 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 I didn't understand the type of pushback that I was getting on on this particular particular roadmap, and we we went we had this conversation about two or three times. And I was I was I didn't understand where where the disconnect was, but there was clearly a disconnect. And it was only I was I was in the corridor, and my my chief of staff was talking to the CEO's chief of staff on a, on a whiteboard. And they were, they were talking in French, and I, I don't think they realized how much French I actually understood. And so I said, it's okay if I sit here in English. And they said, yeah, sure. So I'm, I'm typing away, and they're, they're on the whiteboard, and, and I'm listening to what they're doing, because I'm trying to understand what, what, what's the disconnect here. And, and finally, Guillaume Linet, the, the, the chief of staff of, of Rod, the CEO, he said something, and I forget what it was, but immediately, so the penny finally dropped for me. And so then I said, excuse me, can I ask you a few questions? And so I, I started to understand the approach that, that was being taken by, by Rod and my French colleagues to the idea of planning. And it kind of went back to almost French education that it needs to, there's a, there's a, a need for academic purity yeah. and analytical thoroughness that is anathema to to the way that we build things, quite frankly. Uh, we don't know all of the answers. We'll work it out as we go along. We don't know what's right, but we know what's wrong. And we're not going to go there, right? You don't need to run into a brick wall to know that it's going to hurt, right? And But so the fact that there was that philosophical approach, there's the pragmatic approach and there's the academic approach. That was something that took, it took about two, at least two weeks to actually debug. Then essentially what I did was like, okay, so this is what I understand. It's the way that you're thinking this through. And they're going, yeah, absolutely. Why aren't you doing that? I said, (laughs) okay, for us to actually do that, you'd have a spreadsheet with, you know, 57 rows. And each one of those rows would take all of my leaders right? Because that's the key thing. It would take all of my leaders at least eight hours to work out. So do the math. We haven't got that long. But we know that 
a bunch of those are not necessary. So we immediately eliminate those and we use our skills and experience, which feels qualitative, feels subjective, but it isn't. It's based off of good experience to chart a path forward. And so this was, again, one of these cultural differences that took a while to work out. But once we worked it out, it was, it was clear what we're doing or why we're doing it. Coming into the situation with a learner mindset, with curiosity, that's mm. the key thing. It's like, these are super smart people, but they don't agree with me. Either I'm wrong or I don't understand where they're coming from. You got to work out where they're coming from and then you can come, come together. Cool. Great story. Thank you. You're and welcome. I can see that. I can definitely see that. <laughs> it's not just me then. Huh? No. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I work with French people, but I don't act as French people anymore. So uh, I can see the disconnect. To say, yeah, there's a more efficient way of doing things. But there are pros and cons of, of every yeah. country and every culture, right? Sure, yeah. It takes diversity. It takes a team for sure. Yeah, yeah. totally, totally. Yeah. Great. So we are... Hitting our closing questions, so how do you keep learning as and growing as a leader? I, I think there are a couple of different things. First of all, what I've been doing over the last few years is journaling. Oh, nice. Yeah, I started that a month ago. Yeah, highly, highly recommend it. And that's... Every day? I try to every day. I, I don't succeed, but I try to every day. When I was... When I was in 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 France, I was doing that every day, and mostly it's 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 to help you help me anyway become more self aware to crystallize thoughts, feelings, ideas. Once for me, once I get it on paper, I can then start thinking it through a little bit more, and it can I, I can take a step back. So, what what type of things are you writing down? I mean, is that could be anything. It could be a particular situation that happened a question that i have a doubt that i have how i'm feeling oh it could be whatever whatever inspires you it's you there are there are books out there there are journal guides that can ask you provocative questions that's going to help you because when when people are, are faced with a blank page writing the first word can be a challenge i get around that the first thing that i write is the date and where i am very simple every time and all of a sudden it's like oh and off you go yeah. the, the first step's always the hardest right and so that I, I journal what i found really helpful is conversations like this so there are things that i've articulated in this conversation that i've never articulated before and it's only kind of doing it in real time that i've been able to think things through and so i apologize for any errors or mistakes that i've made <laughs> as I've been going through this, but it, it, the types of questions that you're asking as a way to actually learn yourself. I advise a number of companies. I, I, I coach and I mentor people. And it's the questions that, that they ask that really, again, helps me think through either things that I've experienced and done, and I've got a crisper way to articulate it, or it could be a, huh, I hadn't thought about that at all that's a really good question and so it enables you to think through that then the the classic is obviously i read a lot mm -hmm. but i i don't i i read a lot of i've read tons of management books i think we've all kind of read those but i also read books on macroeconomics uh -huh. on behavioral economics depending on what field I'm in at a time. It could be, I've read books on neuroscience, on decision-making, habit-building, 
on politics. I've read a, a lot on history. So as, as a leader, you're constantly trying to provide people context. And to be able to use metaphors, analogies, other industries to help frame that context is highly valuable. So things like driving the cars, building the cars you're driving down the freeway or th little things like this enable people to really grasp where you're coming from. And as broad as, as you can get your knowledge and experience, the better you're able to communicate and provide context and the better able you're able to understand where people are coming from. So specifically, the culture map from Erin Meyer. This is, she did, she's a researcher and originally a researcher and an analyst in, in culture. And as the name implies, the culture map, she, she took what seems like arbitrary and subjective differences between cultures and was able to create a framework that an analytical person like me can get your head around. So if you think about decision-making or you think about consensus building, You've got top-down, you've got collaborative. If you think about conflict resolution, you've got team, and, or you've got, I think on the other end is not aggressive, but uh, proactive. And, you, and, and different, obviously, we're talking with very large brushstrokes, but each country kind of sits on these, on these continuums. And that was a really helpful entry point, in particular when you're living in a foreign country, to understand how that how that country operates as a starting point to understanding, right? This is obviously, it's cliches, it's, it, it's, it's, it's very vague and high level to start off with, but it's like, okay, if, if you're to the left of me on this continuum, that means I need to ask these types of questions. Or if you're to the right of me on this continuum, it means that we need to have a one-on-one. -on -one. I definitely don't want to call you out in public, Yeah, right? And so it gives you a starting point for your curiosity to have that framework of, of really learning and understanding more. So I definitely recommend that. So those, it's, it's having conversations like this, it's helping people, and it, it's reading. Growth mindset, that's really what it comes down to. Strong opinions, loosely held, growth mindset. Perfect. So we, you talk about culture map, we talk about team topologies, you talk about also another book that I forgot that I wrote somewhere, Hit Refresh. Yes. Any other that you would, you would recommend? The other one that's definitely in our wheelhouse is Empowered. Empowered, yeah. By Marty Kagan, mm -hmm. the original author of the PM Bible, Inspired. The, that's, I, I think that's, those are three good books to get started. Yeah. yeah, for sure. All right. What's your favorite interview question you ask candidate? Yeah, this was, this is tricky because I tend to be more fluid in the questions that I'm asking, depending on where the question goes. But I think the one that I, I like most is, it's a compound question. What is the hardest thing you've ever done? Why did you do it? How did you do it? And what did you learn? What we're doing within tech in particular is, is very hard. Yeah. We're trying to we're trying to change human behavior at scale. Right. Essentially, software products are doing one of two things. They're either changing human behavior or replacing Excel. That, that's basically it. And the replacing Excel is relatively straightforward, but it's changing human behavior that's really, really, really hard. And yeah, 
Okay. And so what what type of things are you looking for in in the in a candidate answer? Self-awareness, grit. Mm. <laughs> They've really got to be able to ambition you're looking for that there's another key thing i forget the name of the book now i need to to look back at it but there's a definition you've got superstars and rock stars right people focus on the superstars people that are shooting really high and and they've you know they're they're going to be ceo they're going to be president whatever and they're very important people to help a, an organization move forward but they forget about the rock stars people that you know they want to come in and they they deliver solidly they're strong leaders within the organization they could be the corporate conscience right they understand the values of the company and without them everything would kind of fall apart but they're not really looking to be a superstar you know they've they've got things that are going on outside of the company yeah. they've got a family whatever it happens to be and so you need you need both of those types of, of of personalities that are coming in to the organization. So when you say ambition, it's more, it's less about yeah you want to be the CEO. It's more about you, you've you've got a, a direction. You see a goal, and you know that that hard thing that you did. It could be building a company, building a product. It could be running a marathon. It could be having a baby. You know, it could be all of these things are really really hard to do. It's it's why did they do them? How did they do them? And what did they learn? And I think is really going to tell you a lot about that person. And then, out of that answer and the conversation that comes from that, you're going to understand more deeply about what motivates that individual. But then also how they're going to fit into the organization within which you're going to be bringing them. Are they going to be a values match? Are they going to be a, a culture match? with the team that they're going to be working with. Skills are easy to acquire. That's pretty straightforward. You, you clock in the time, you do the work, you're going to get the skill. It, it's how you're going to fit into the rest of the team and the adder that you're going to, the, the addition, what are you going to bring to that team to make the team as a whole more productive, more effective, happier? That's what's going to really have the, make the difference. Sounds good. How can the audience find you or how can be listeners be useful to you? The the easiest place to find me is actually on LinkedIn. LinkedIn, yeah. I will share your LinkedIn then. Perfect. And if anybody wants to connect with me over there, happy to. Or you can DM me there. Yeah, LinkedIn. So how can be listeners be useful to you? Ask me questions. Provide feedback. I've I've talked a lot in this conversation about very complex and deep deep challenges and i've had to go over them as verbose as i am i've gone as lightly as i could and still hopefully try to maintain some sort of remain somewhat interesting so there's a lot more that could be probably taken out from what i've what i've talked about so any questions or yeah happy to happy to engage perfect thank you and last question what other leaders should i interview next who would you recommend so I, I think a leader that's doing tremendous work, or has done tremendous work for for a while actually, is is a gentleman, a friend of mine called Brian Elliott. He is a one of the founders of the Future Forum. I came out of Slack. He was also out of Google beforehand, but his his passion is the future of work. Nice. Yeah. Okay. So a lot about there's obviously there's a lot of conversation about remote work versus coming in, and that's. I think that is the the easy thing to point at, but what's more important, what he spends a lot of time looking at and thinking about is productivity, effectiveness, happiness, life balance, things like that. The types of challenges that 
leaders and managers wrestle with, especially in this post-pandemic world. Wow. Perfect. Sounds good. All right. So we reached the two-hour mark. Two hours. Yeah. yeah Time hours flies mark. when you're having fun. I, <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much, James. Too much. Thank you, Roman. That <laughs> yeah. was a, a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Thank you. You stayed until the end. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Paid Forward Society. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and share it with at least two people who would benefit from this discussion. Your support helps me reach more people and make a greater impact. You can also help me get discovered by leaving a five-star rating and a review on your favorite podcast platform. I appreciate your support and look forward to continuing this journey with you. Bye.